In order for us to get the most out of the story recorded for us in Daniel 5, it's important we begin with a little historical context. Now, up front, the names of the various players recorded in history are very difficult to pronounce. I don't know if you didn't know this, but I'm not Chaldean, nor do I speak Chaldean. Now, their official names are in the notes, c316.tv, but I've decided to have a little fun with it to make it easier. I've given them nicknames. Here we go. little historical backdrop. After a 43-year reign, on October 7th, 562 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar passes away, leaving the throne to his evil son, Evil Knievel. While this man is mentioned for us by name, in both 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52, his reign was brief. You see, after two years, he's brutally assassinated by his brother-in-law, aptly named the Kingslayer. Mentioned in Jeremiah 39, as one of the princes of the king of Babylon, the Kingslayer ruled for only four years until he died of natural causes. Now, because the Kingslayer's son, his only son, had a mental handicap, few fries short of a Happy Meal would reign only nine months before being beaten to death by a gang of conspirators. Their leader, and I will get his name right, Nabonidus, another one of Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-laws, I mean, his daughters married some real winners, Nabonidus took the throne from a few fries short of a Happy Meal in 556 B.C. As a former general, knowing the Persian threat was growing, Nabonidus went on the offensive, leaving control of Babylon, the city, to his eldest son, Belshazzar. Now, according to Babylonian records, which you can read about, they're on display at the British Museum, Belshazzar became co-regent of Babylon in 553 B.C., the third year of his father's reign. He would continue in this position until the ultimate fall of Babylon to the Persians in 539. Now, for the context... Of the occasion we have recorded here in Daniel 5, keep in mind, by the time you get to Daniel 5, the Babylonian armies have been crushed by the Persians and the Medes. Now, history is a little split, divided on whether Nabonidus by Daniel 5 has been captured or whether he's just fled the city. Either way, he's not there. It's October. The year's 539. The Medes and the Persians have now descended and surrounded the city of Babylon. They're actively looking for a way to launch a successful siege. On a side note, approximately 25 years have transpired since the close of Daniel 4. Daniel the prophet is in his mid-80s. Now taking Babylon, this city, this great city, was easier said than done. As I mentioned in our second study of our Grace in Exile series, the sheer size and the breadth of her walls, Babylon, it was unlike anything that had ever been constructed at this point in human history. The population of Babylon ranged somewhere, they estimate, between one and two million people. The blueprint occupied an area of about 200 square miles. This was the city that was walled, 200 square miles. It's roughly the size of present-day Chicago. Babylon was entirely self-sufficient. Not only were the people living inside the walls able to grow their own food, 
But Babylon had a continual supply of water flowing through the heart of the city in the form of the Euphrates River. In order to withstand a siege from any invading empire, Nebuchadnezzar had masterfully fortified Babylon with massive 40-foot outer walls that were roughly 22 feet thick. These walls possessed guard towers that were 100 feet high, reinforced even further with a system of inner walls and moats to create kill zones. And what can be described as a pure feat of engineering. These walls were constructed to cross the Euphrates River and armed with a series of bronze and iron gates that would allow the Euphrates River to flow under the walls into the city, but had gates that would keep an invading army from utilizing the waterway. With these fortifications coupled with the continual supply of water, the conventional wisdom of the day was that Babylon was impenetrable. <laughs> or so they thought. Greek historian Herodotus recounts how the Persian king Cyrus devises an unlikely plan that was executed with perfection by a general, a Mede, named Darius. Knowing a conventional assault of Babylon was impossible, Cyrus does something different. He sends half of his army to the southern wall downstream. The other half of his army go upstream many miles out of sight. And what they do is they begin working on a way to divert the Euphrates River from her riverbed and into a nearby swampland completely unaware of what's happening. One fateful night, the project's completed, the water level finally lowers enough that a small brigade of troops, history says knee-deep in water, were quietly able to approach the river gates. And to their surprise and astonishment, the gates have been left unlocked providing easy entry into the city. History says that Babylon fell so quickly and quietly that most of the residents were completely unaware until days later. For additional context, I want to present a theory that while everyone in Babylon was caught off guard by Cyrus's plan, Daniel knew exactly what was coming. Now you might think, how in the world does Daniel know what was coming? Jewish historians claim that when King Cyrus finally makes his triumphal entry into Babylon about two weeks after her fall, he ends up being met by this old, feeble Jewish man named Daniel, who requests an audience, he's granted one, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he presents to King Cyrus a prophecy of Isaiah given 200 years before that moment. Now speaking of the man that God would raise up to destroy Babylon. And at the time that Isaiah is writing this, Babylon, it's just a speck out in the desert. It's not a power, not a global entity. Speaking of the man that God would, would raise up to crush an empire that doesn't exist yet that God would then use to restore the Hebrew people back to their land, though they haven't even been taken from their land at the time it's written. It's powerful. Isaiah 55, just let me read you the first few verses. 
Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him double doors so that gates (laughs) will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's elect, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Two hundred years. The prophet Isaiah, moved by the Spirit of the Lord, names the very man that would bring about the fall of the Babylonian Empire, the man God would then use to restore the children of Israel who had been taken into exile back. Names him Cyrus. Now, Daniel, he knows the scriptures, he knows the prophecies, he's familiar with Isaiah. Imagine the moment as Daniel's flipping through the Babylonian Gazette, reading about this growing Persian threat that he stumbles across the name of the main power broker, Cyrus. Daniel knew. In fact, in response to to this, we read in 2 Chronicles 36, after Daniel comes and meets the king and shows him this prophecy, We're told that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the Lord stirred up the spirit in Cyrus, king of Persia. I think Daniel had something to do with that. So that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, "Thus Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Who among you are his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus issues the command, allowing the Hebrew people to go and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple for the worship of God. Now, the reason all of this is important, important to know before we work our way through Daniel 5, is that the event recorded in this chapter documents What's occurring in the king's palace the very night Babylon fell? Like prophetically, Daniel knows Babylon's days are numbered. Everyone else on this faithful night are completely oblivious that they will not live to see the next morning. So Daniel 5, let's dive right in. Verse 1, we're told that Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the kings and lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This phrase, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, we might immediately think, well, this is the Actual son of Nebuchadnezzar. In ancient cultures, the father of implied a descendancy of. Like the Jews would say, Father Abraham, though they weren't actually the sons of Abraham. That was Ishmael and Isaac. Father Abraham, just I'm the descendant of, I'm in lineage with. 
We're told that they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. Again, all of Jerusalem lay in ruins. The kings, his lords, his wives, his concubines, they drink from them, they drink wine, and they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood. You know, when you consider the Babylonian armies have fallen, and the Medo-Persians presently have the city utterly surrounded, the scene we have being depicted in these first four verses demonstrates really quite a bit of overconfidence and hubris, doesn't it? Like, like no one in the scene, Belshazzar or his friends, no one seems concerned and the slightest of the threat right outside the gates. While you'd think the king would have displayed some type of seriousness regarding their present situation, Belshazzar does the opposite. He decides to throw a huge party with a guest list topping a thousand. The kings and lords, well, they represented the who's who of Babylonian society. This was an affair. The party of the year thrown for really no other reason than the king wanted to throw it. The scene here, this party, is best described using six Ds. The first, well, there was decadence. I imagine this function kicked off at sunset. You have all the A-listers rolling up to the red carpet and their platinum-plated chariots. As each guest gets out of the chariot and, and begins to walk up, they're greeted with flashing bulbs of the paparazzi. Off to the side, you have entertainment today. There are commentators and the gala sizing up outfits and dresses. The blogosphere is abuzz with all the latest gossip. As the DJ drops the latest Chaldean Top 40, it doesn't take long for the wine and cristal to start flowing. What would have been characterized by a sobriety on account of their situation following the king's lead? Oh, man. It, it, it doesn't take long for decadence to transition to drunkenness. Everyone has thrown caution to the wind. They're partying hard. They're living it up. With the notable mention here of the king's wives and concubines in attendance. And concubines, if you don't know, are basically the stripper girlfriends of the king. You can imagine the party was also filled with debauchery. It's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes becomes the anthem of the evening. I mean, having such a party in a presidential palace... Oh man, that would have been the envy of any and all Kennedy brothers. Sadly, as this party gets lit, things take an unexpected turn into desecration. We're told Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink or party with. Not only does the king and his guests drink from these sec sacred, holy vessels, but this party, it manifests a level of deviancy. Not only are they drinking from these vessels reserved for the holy God of Israel, but as they're doing so, they're praising the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. You know, it's been said that hedonism and materialism are natural siblings. Aside from the temple furniture and utensils, 
In Ezra chapter 1, verse 9, we're given a description of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Ezra records, this is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 total. I mean, I mean, what a set of china. Now, considering Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in chapter 4 and his edict that no one was allowed to speak ill of the God of Israel, it's safe to assume, to reason, that these holy, sacred artifacts had been placed into storage, into safekeeping. Not only is Belshazzar desecrating the sacred by using them for such a soiree, but he's also demonstrating a blatant disrespect for the wishes and the legacy of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. This disrespectful party, filled with decadence, drunkenness, debauchery, deviancy, and desecration, continues long into the evening. Everyone is self-indulged, burning the night away. While they're doing this, they are oblivious to the fact the waters of the Euphrates are dropping inch by inch, foot by foot. They're oblivious that a small brigade of troops have approached the iron gates. They're oblivious that these gates were left unlocked and that these troops are now inside the city. Oblivious. And then out of nowhere, the most unexpected thing happens in this party. Verse 5, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, and the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. Like, what a moment. People are partying. You got laser lights going across the room. People are drinking it up. When out of nowhere, the finger of a man's hand appears and begins writing on the plaster of the wall across from the king. I mean, in, in an instant, like the, the turntable screeches to a halt. Like men and women, seeing what, what's happening, they start scrambling over one another, trying to find their clothes. Glasses and cocktail trays shatter on the ground as weak hands begin to tremble with fright. People stand, their mouths aghast. Everyone is shell-shocked, unable to wrap their brains around what they're seeing. Like, what did this look like? I wish we were given more details, a better description. I mean, the fingers of a man's hand. Did you see the whole hand? Was it like from the elbow down? Like, what... Did it look like someone was reaching through a dimension? Clearly, this was otherworldly, a supernatural happening. I wonder what kind of sound the writing made as the finger moved against the plaster. Like, was it a soldering sound? Oh, I wish I had more details. Now, as this finger continued to write, we're told the king... He's standing there, 
His countenance changes. His thoughts trouble him. Literally, he turns white as a ghost. His knees knock together in fright. The joints of his hips are loose, meaning that Belshazzar, he's not, not just white. He's peed and soiled himself. Like, keep in mind, Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. As a young man, he'd seen this titan take a hard fall. Like, he'd been there. To see his, his grandfather go nuts. And then to hear, hear the, the explanation when he was restored to his right, right sense, his set of senses. Like Belshazzar had heard his, his grandfather's testimony. He knew the truth of the God of the Jews. He'd been a witness. Though I'm sure there were numerous factors involved, I believe Belshazzar's reaction to the scene implies a guilty conscience. He's been struck deep. Like he knew that what he was doing was wrong and that his impulsive decision to use the temple vessels in such a disgraceful way had been ill-advised. Belshazzar freaks out because he knows God has crashed his party. Verse 7, So the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, you know, the typical crew. And the king spoke, and he said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. I wonder if there was a clock attached. He shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And again, this gives some idea that Nabonidus is around, not in the city. Nabonidus the king, Belshazzar co-regent. You can only offer the third position. He continues, now all the king's wise men, they came. And we're told they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. So Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance changed further, and his lords were astonished. You know, as you study this passage, you're going to find a, a myriad of different explanations as to why these wise men could not read the writing or make known its interpretation. And, and realize there's two components. Reading it, they couldn't do. They couldn't even read it yet alone interpret what it meant. Now, some will argue that, well, <laughs> I mean, what did the wise men ever get right? Still, others would say that maybe this was written in like an ancient form of Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew uh, was, was written in, in, a, in, a, in a type of calligraphy that maybe the Chaldeans were unfamiliar with. Or that the text was presented in such a way that it was coded. Others argue that God just simply blinded their ability to make sense of it all. Or that maybe the vowels had been, had been written kind of to be a cipher, adding to confusion. In the end, we don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but we can say that everyone there, the king, the partiers, the wise men, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans, no one has any idea what was written or what it meant. So verse 10, we're told the queen, because of the words of the kings of the king and his lords, she comes to the banquet hall. Now, now, on account of this ruckus, Belshazzar, his friends, they've been partying in the banquet hall. She gets word that there's been this thing that's happened. She comes, and she arrives with some advice. Now, since Belshazzar, we've already been told his wives were at the party. 
The queen here is likely his mother, Nabonidus' wife, who is a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Keep in mind, there's a dignity about this woman. And we know that because she had nothing to do with this party. She wasn't there. She wasn't in in attendance. She doesn't grace it at all. She continues, though. She arrives. She speaks. She says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief among the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And as much as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king had named Belteshazzar, Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Again, I mentioned this in the lead-in, but Daniel's a senior citizen. Like his days wrap up around 4 o'clock at the Golden Corral. He's in his mid-80s. Since being taken captive, he's been living now in Babylon for 60 years. Since Belshazzar doesn't really know much about him, it's likely Daniel had retired. You know, so many changing of the guards. He just stepped aside, or, or at least he's been operating behind the scenes for several years now. And yet, while the king might have been oblivious, the queen, she had kept tabs on the old man. First, she knows about Daniel's special relationship with her father. She knows about the trust that Nebuchadnezzar had placed in this, this Hebrew. Secondly, she knew Daniel was a man of an excellent spirit and whom the spirit of the, of the holy God dwelt. Third, she's aware of Daniel's kind of unique ability to interpret dreams and solve riddles and explain enigmas. Finally, there's no doubt, no question, that the queen, who'd been a little girl running around the palace, exposed to Daniel, there's no, no doubt that she admired him. Now, how, how could you say that, Zach? You know, it's not an accident that she only refers to him as Daniel, his God-given Jewish name. Verse 13, so Daniel, he's brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, he's going to repeat some, he's going to basically repeat the things his mother has told him. He says, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives of Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you that the Spirit of God lives in you. He doesn't know this firsthand. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. He's bloviating. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a gold chain around your neck, you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom great like don't forget the very moment daniel had heard the name of the persian king cyrus he connected dots daniel knows that this charade this house of he knows it's all going to come crashing down that cyrus will conquer them the fall of babylon is a matter of when not if and my guess as as daniel and i i imagine him with this this staff in his hand a walker as he makes his way into this room, walking through, you know, 
passed out partiers, overturned tables and chairs, stepping over vomit. As he makes his way up to the, you know, the, the table of honor where the king is, he's already seen the writing on the wall, right? And my guess is it's reaffirmed. He knows what it means, and it's reaffirmed what he already knows is imminent. And in light of that, I mean, who really cares about being the third ruler in a kingdom that's doomed? Verse 17, so Daniel answers, and he says to the king, he says, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Keep all that stuff, man. I will, though, read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, before getting to the writing on the wall, Daniel is going to kind of get off script. By giving Belshazzar a much-needed history lesson to explain or set the stage for what is being articulated. He says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that God gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever Nebuchadnezzar wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. He had absolute authority. But, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. And they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. And his dwelling was with wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Recounting what happened in the previous chapter. And these things happened to Nebuchadnezzar till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now, now Daniel transitions to how his grandfather's story applies to Belshazzar. Verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all this, speaking of his grandfather's story, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. I could imagine he's looking around. He says, they've brought all the vessels of God's house before you. And you, your lords, your wives, and these stripper prostitutes have drunk wine from them. You've desecrated this. You did what was wrong and you knew it. And in the process, you praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. The God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, Belshazzar, you have not glorified that seed. I mean, you want to talk about taking someone to the woodshed. Like the room's filled with a thousand drunk, half-naked, freaked-out onlookers pounding down espresso in an attempt to sober up quickly. The king looks like Casper, who's peed and soiled himself. The queen standing there, probably a bit embarrassed that Daniel, this man she, she respects so much, is there to witness it all. As the old man looks around and he notices the vessels that came from his temple, his heart weighs heavy. He's so disappointed what had become of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Nebuchadnezzar's legacy and his family. Like Daniel takes no delight in bearing bad news, but he bears it anyway. 
Like Daniel's rebuke of the king, it's tempered <laughs> in no way at all. Like this old man speaks truth to power without fear. He's not intimidated. He calls out this man for his sin and his wickedness. You have not humbled your heart. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have drunk wine from the vessels of his house. You have praised gods which do not see or hear. You have not glorified God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways. Boom, 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 boom. Now notice the essence of Daniel's rebuke. After recounting the story of his grandfather, Daniel says, but you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. <laughs> Don't let that escape you for a minute. Like, like Daniel is saying that Belshazzar was going to be held accountable for acting contrary to and defiant of what he already knew about God from the testimony of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar's interactions with the Lord. Like, don't miss that. God is saying that he will hold this man accountable for his behavior in light of the witness of his grandfather. Now, now the implications of that idea are radical for you and I. Like, if Belshazzar would be held to account for failing to learn from the work that God did in the life of his grandfather. Not himself, but his grandfather. What excuse do we really have when we hold in our hands a book filled from cover to cover with stories of God working in the countless lives of saints throughout the centuries? The truth? We have no excuse. God will hold you to account for the lessons you should have learned through his handling of people in your life. It's powerful. Now, after this sobering point, Daniel gets to the writing on the wall. Verse 24. The fingers of the hand were sent from him, speaking of God, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Meaning, meaning, tekla, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. So these were the words, meaning, meaning, tekel, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word, meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel begins by relaying to the king the inscription written on the wall. Four words, meeny, meeny, tekel, eupharsin. Regarding the interpretation, it seems that each of these words articulated a message that when placed together, presented God's judgment. The word meeny signifies a measurement. The first use, again there's two, the first indicated God had numbered Belshazzar's kingdom or, or determined how long his kingdom was going to remain. There was a defined time. The second use of the word meaning indicates the time has expired. God has numbered your kingdom. He's measured it. It's finished. Meaning, meaning. The next word, tekel, 
signifies weighing. It's the word that we end up getting shekel from or is a, a set of measurements. Weighing, weight. Not only was his kingdom finished, but God had also weighed Belshazzar and in doing so found him to be wanting or, or literally lacking or deficient. He had fallen short. The final word in the sequence, Eupharsin, or Perez, it signifies division. Because Belshazzar's time had expired, and he'd fallen short of God's holy standard, his kingdom had been divided between the Medes and the Persians. And note, God says this, the writing on the wall, and the past tense. It's likely as Daniel is relaying these things to the king, the gates have been breached, and his execution squad is on the way. Verse 29. So Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a gold chain around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this is exactly what Daniel requested not happen. So because they're now doing it, it, it lends to the idea that Belshazzar's mocking Daniel, and in doing so, rejecting the message. But then we're told, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. History tells us that everyone in this party was slaughtered. The chapter closes, kind of setting the stage for chapter 6. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's close with a few final thoughts about this story. First and foremost, Belshazzar. <laughs> Man, this dude had a false sense that he was untouchable. Sure, his enemies were parked just outside the gates looking for a way to get in, but he lived in Babylon. He was safe and secure. Nothing could get to him. You know, the irony of ironies as Belshazzar partied that night, completely oblivious, his death and judgment were imminent. Like, even when the writing was on the wall, literally, and Daniel told him the blunt truth about his future, this proud man, arrogant man, brushed it aside. God had gave him a witness, his grandfather. Daniel testified, but in the end, this proud man stood against the Lord so God stood against him. You know, it's a grievous thing to consider how similar so many in our world are to Belshazzar. They reject God's word. They resist his warnings about a judgment that awaits. They party on, Garth, because they're confident that tomorrow will bring them another day. There's no urgency, no imminency. You know, in Hebrews 9, verse 27, we're told that it's appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. You know, the difficult reality of that verse is that it pops this bubble. The idea that our death, it's out of our control. Like, our death, your death, is an appointment that God has made <laughs> without your consultation. You don't know when you're going to die. Belshazzar partied on, and then, in a swift and unexpected moment, his party was over. 
Secondly, it's hard to walk away from such a passage and not see the surety of God's word, specifically as it relates to Babylon. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in Daniel 2, God was clear that after you, O king, shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. Though Babylon believed she was impenetrable, she couldn't be taken. God was clear. Babylon would not last forever. Judgment was coming. She would fall. Her fate was sealed. I don't, I don't mean in what I'm about to say, to be fatalistic. I just mean to be brutally honest. Like over the last few weeks, we've been reminded how fallen and broken this planet we live in really is. And the truth is none of the things that we see should come as a surprise to us. We already know the truth. Babylon this world, its culture, its society, its structures, its institutions, they're all evil. They're fallen. They're broken. Babylon does what it can to divide us, not unite us. Injustices in Babylon prevail. They're the norm. Babel fills people with hatred. It separates humanity into camps. It fosters war against the factions. It's what Babylon has done Always, and history does nothing but repeat itself. And tragically, and I relate to it, but in our genuine, honest attempt to live life, to live, to live out our faith, Christians, you know, we so often forget, especially when we see things around us, that our mission, our commission, our purpose is not to change Babylon. Our purpose is not to usher in social reforms in Babylon or create a more equitable Babylonian system. As long as society is filled with sinners, things will remain dysfunctional. Like God's word is crystal clear. Culture and the society around us will not get better Things will continue to get worse. Again, I'm not trying to be fatalistic, just honest. Divisions, the divisions we see from political to racial to social economics, they will, they will harden. I know the end of the story. I know its progression. Godlessness, people are not going to get more friendlier. They're going to get more, God, uh, uh, more, more wicked. Godlessness will reign. Our kings and rulers will stand against the Creator. Like in the end, the story of this world, the story being written every night on the news, it will end with Jesus Christ returning. It will end with Him coming down, riding a stallion, slaying the wicked, destroying Babylon, putting an end to the madness, and replacing it all with His kingdom on earth. And until that happens, there is nothing that any of us can do to fix this place. It's not a fixer-upper. 
It will take Jesus to right all wrongs. It will take Jesus to heal all wounds. Until Jesus establishes his reign on this earth and Babylon is cast into hell forever. Peace is nothing more than an unattainable illusion, a false promise. Again, I'm not being fatalistic, just realistic. I'm convinced understanding where this all ends should help clarify what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime, in the moment. You see, our job, we're ambassadors of heaven, of this coming kingdom. Our job is not to get into the weeds, but stand above them and point to a Savior named Jesus, a Savior who will liberate anyone from their brokenness and transform any life, making them new. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak out against wrongs. But you know, we should consider what we say when we speak. Babylon's fate has been determined. Protesting for a more equitable, just, fair cabin structure is pointless when the ship you're on is named the Titanic. Friend, when the boat is sinking, the only important thing people need to know is where they can find a lifeboat. We've been distracted. This world will end in hell. That's a fact. And it's our job to let people know they can go to heaven. Like, I'm glad that people were outraged over the unjustified death of George Floyd. Like, we should be outraged. You know, I just wish we were equally outraged at how many black lives were unjustly murdered by abortionists, disproportionate, by the way, to whites. You want to talk about systematic racism? You should start there. Like, in the end, this world will burn, and Jesus will come again. As Christians, may we be more passionate about Jesus and his kingdom than we are about anything else, including protesting racism or making America great again. Never forget, we live in Babylon. Our world is a fallen place. People are sinners and, wick and they're wicked. And it's only Jesus that can change the human heart. Lastly, I want to pivot very hard to one final idea I, I have to share from this text. Something I can't prove, <laughs> but I find very interesting. In the Bible, we have three references to the finger of God writing something. Uh, the first is back in Deuteronomy 9, when we're told it's the finger of God that wrote the law onto two tablets of stone he gives to Moses. God's law established the standard by which man's standing would be, note, weighed and measured. You know, the second time we have the finger of God reference is actually here in Daniel 5, when Belshazzar is weighed, measured, and a judgment pronounced. So we have the law, and then we have the application of the law and the condemnation of Belshazzar. Interesting. What's, what's, int what's fascinating is there's only one other time that we have a reference to the finger of God writing something. 
and it's found in John 8. Let me read you the story. We're told that early in the morning Jesus came into the temple. All the people came. He taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, these religious right, they brought a woman caught in adultery. They set her in the midst and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus, this woman caught in adultery. Do you remember when the finger of God wrote on the tablets and said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and it was punishable by stoning? This was God's pronouncement. <laughs> what does Jesus do? He stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger, <laughs> as though he didn't even hear them. So they continue asking. So he raised himself up. He said, Who is without sin among you? Let him throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the eldest down to the last. So Jesus, when he had risen up and saw that no one was there but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, no one, Lord. So Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yeah, there's always been this grand debate as to what, was it that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger? And I agree, it's, it's impossible to say. But I have a theory. Like, what if Jesus wrote to this woman the same four words he wrote to Belshazzar in Daniel 5? That as he's in the, in the ground, this woman knowing the story, he writes, meanie, meanie, tekel yufarsi. And don't forget, meanie means measurement. Tekel signifies weight. Eupharsin denotes division. You know, the similarities, think about it, between Belshazzar and this woman are interesting. For them both, they'd been caught. Their time had expired. They'd both fallen short of God's standard. Their time had expired, meanie and meanie. It was finished. They had been weighed and found wanting. And they're both, what, surrounded by enemies that are wanting to kill them. Enact judgment. In truth, what resulted for both, what happened to both, was a division of sorts. And yet, while God allowed the Medes and the Persians to judge Belshazzar because he was prideful and arrogant, on account of the humility of this woman, what does Jesus do? He divides himself and this woman from her executioners. And instead of the judgment, a judgment that it had been measured, she had been weighed, and she was guilty. She had committed adultery. But instead of judgment, a judgment she deserved, Jesus granted her a grace she didn't. What a powerful story. So many applications, so much to unpack. I encourage you, study this more on your own. Read ahead. Next Sunday we'll be in Daniel chapter 6. So Father, Lord, we take a moment and let that settle in. Lord, we appreciate your word.